sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about what a real People's Party could look like in the United States as the political situation worsens here. Also going to be marking 13 years since uh, a coup in Honduras. And it's Friday, which means we're having the Red Spin Report where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Yes, politics does worsen in this country in yet another horrible decision by the Supreme Court. Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. wrote in the majority opinion uh, that the Environmental Protection Agency can only make sweeping changes to the nation's power sector with explicit approval from Congress. But because some lawmakers don't believe climate change is real and don't care if we die because of it, they haven't given that authority to the agency. So this Supreme Court decision now limits the EPA's authority to regulate emissions from power plants. The Washington Post reports that Katie Tubb, a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative propaganda and misinformation operation, said the court was right to restrict the EPA's power, saying many on the left want the EPA to regulate emissions to achieve a radical climate agenda. But it matters in this country who makes those decisions. From my perspective, it is important that American representatives are the ones, rather than unelected bureaucrats in the EPA. It's well to me that she said radical climate agenda as if preserving clean air, water and doing something to slow the advance of climate change so we all can, you know, live on this planet is some wild, crazy, radical idea. And the bit about unelected bureaucrats making decisions, a bunch of unelected conservative activists just decided that the EPA's scientists and experts on climate change can't make policy regarding how power plants can best reduce their contribution to climate change. The hypocrisy is glaring and galling. This isn't total doom, however. The ruling still allows the agency to continue regulating carbon emissions from power plants. It just can't force utility companies to shift from coal to renewable energy. And obviously, that's a win for the coal companies that have been fighting the transition from the deadly fossil fuel to renewable energy for decades, choosing to continue mining and exposing workers to horrible working conditions, awful health problems, and all of us to a decimated environment Also, they can continue to make money off of coal. The court argues that states can enact their own emissions-controlling, renewable energy-focused policies, and some have and will. But plenty of states will not, and those states will become even more unsafe places for people to live with coal and other fossil fuel barons and the politicians they pay for deciding environmental policy that the rest of us have to live with, or more accurately, that the rest of us will die from. 
And in two other rulings that haven't received as much attention as the Supreme Court decisions on Roe versus Wade and the EPA rules, the court issued an order this week that effectively reinstates racially gerrymandered congressional maps in the state of Louisiana, at least for the 2022 election. According to Vox News, under these maps, black voters will control just one of Louisiana's six congressional seats, despite the fact that black people in Louisiana make up nearly a third of the state's population. Thus, the court's decision in Adroin v. Robinson means that black people will have half as much congressional representation as they would have under maps where black voters have as much opportunity to elect their own preferred candidate as white people have in Louisiana. Now, the court will hear another gerrymandering case called Merrill v. Milligan, in which they issued a similar order earlier this year that temporarily reinstated maps in Alabama that a panel of three federal judges determined were illegally racially gerrymandered. Now, in both of these cases, the illegally drawn legislative maps give black people much less representation than they should have based on our share in each state's population, which is a clear violation of the Voting Rights Act. But the court doesn't like the Voting Rights Act. So you should expect that these cases will be decided in favor of maintaining the gerrymandered racist districts that dilute political representation of black voters. And then there is the decision in the Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta case in which the Supreme Court ruled that state governments have the authority to prosecute certain cases on tribal lands, effectively undermining centuries of legal precedent by expanding the power of states over tribal sovereignty. This undermines the sovereignty of tribes over their land and governance. And as much as this ruling affects the autonomy of tribes to prosecute crimes on their own lands in a community-based way that meets the needs of their citizens, this is really about giving the state authority to exploit the land for whatever they want, uranium, oil, coal, whatever. And it affects tribal authority in child welfare cases. If you recall back in 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Oklahoma had no authority to prosecute violent crimes by or against Native Americans that happened on tribal lands because they fell under the jurisdiction of tribal governments. Now, the ruling doesn't entirely reverse that decision, but the line drawn around it chokes the life out of tribal sovereignty. Brett Kavanaugh, writing for the majority opinion, said that tribal lands are part of the states they are in and not entirely separate sovereign powers. He wrote, quote, as a matter of state sovereignty, a state has jurisdiction over all of its territory, including Indian country, end quote. Not only does this decision overturn centuries of legal precedent recognizing tribal sovereignty, but it returns indigenous people to the status of being under the authority of the very state that violated their rights, stole their land, and violated their humanity for so many years and continues to do so. Keep up here, folks. 
The Supreme Court of the United States has ruled in all of these cases that the federal government's agencies are overreaching by enacting rules that curb dangerous and toxic emissions from power plants in an effort to curb climate change and maintain a safe environment for all of us. But states are not overreaching by limiting black people's political representation and by snatching authority away from tribal governments. But remember, these conservative activist judges say that they are originalists and believe that the Constitution ought to be interpreted and applied according to the meaning that it would have had at the time that it became law, a time when women, black people, and Native Americans had no constitutional rights. So, what freedom are y'all going to be celebrating this weekend? Follow Lukeman Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dave Lindorf, an investigative journalist, editor of the online publication ThisCan'tBeHappening.net, and 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, Dave, of course, following the uh, recent overturning of a row in the United States with dealt a serious blow to access to abortion rights and other things for millions uh, across uh, the U.S., um, it seems as though we, we've reached a point where people may begin to really start trying to think about political alternatives to the two ruling parties, the Democrats and Republicans. And predictably, I mean, we saw this wave of uh, appeals for donations and talks of, you know, uh, uh, heading to the polls that just don't seem to be resonating in the way that they used to. I mean, matter of fact, I saw one uh, demonstration following the decision that had the chant of voting blue is not enough. Democrats, we call your bluff and just an outright rejection of this, you know, uh, notion that we hear time and again, that when these serious issues happen, that we should just vote Democrat and everything will be fine even though that is often not the case. And you recently published a piece touching on this, on this can't be happening dot net uh, entitled, what would a real opposition party of the people do where you sort of break down uh, what a real uh, people's party platform would look like. So we were hoping that you could talk some about that and break down like what a serious uh, oppositional party in the United States would be fighting for in this moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people forget that the Democrats are not what they say they are. The Democrats present themselves as the party of ordinary people and the Republicans as the party of, you know, rich people. Um, neither is true. The, the, the Republican Party is a party of uh, reaction and they attract a lot of, you know, what used to be called the lumpen proletariat by, uh, by uh, Karl Marx. And, um, these are people who, you know, it, 
statistically, people with lower uh, education vote Republican uh, far more than Democrats do, and people with higher education tend to vote Democratic. That tells you a lot. Um, the The Democrats are certainly a party of money. I mean, they they get the support of some industries while the Republicans get other industries. Uh, and they both take money from some industries like the armament industry. And uh, so they're not really uh, that different, different ideologically. They're both capitalist parties that support the rich. Um, there was one study that showed that only 1% of legislation over the last something like 30 years uh, passed by Congress has actually favored uh, specifically uh, the lower middle class, working class population, even though all these things that the, the public wants are completely ignored by both parties, including the Democrats. So what I thought I would do is just look at what would happen if a party were a party of the people. And, and, and I want to say from the outset that um, it's very hard to get that in the United States because it's the, the system is really structured at the state level and at the national level to have two parties. You know, like the, the two parties get to make the rules. They, they say that uh, on, you know, appointed commissions and stuff, which are very important in our governments, uh, th that there has to be uh, the other side represented. The other side. So that means that you get Republicans on commissions and you get uh, Democrats on commissions, you know, like the, like the FCC or the FTC. You know, they get both of those. But you don't get a radical position. So I just thought, you know, here are here are 15 things that Democrats, if they were a party of the people, could do right away. Many of them wouldn't even require a majority vote in Congress. And they're all popular with the public, including among independents and often among Republicans, too. Yeah. And, you know, I think obviously because of the recent Supreme Court uh, ruling uh, striking Roe versus Wade, I think that that's the, the, the thing that I want to start with, Dave, because your uh, suggestion doesn't just uh, focus on uh, addressing the needs of uh, women who are seeking abortion, but it also addresses the needs of women who are not. So what could the Democrats do if they really were a people's party in regard to ensuring that women have a right to reproductive health? Well, a few people have called out for this already, but, uh, you know, the federal government has buildings in every uh, state and, and virtually every county. You know, there's social security offices in most counties of the country. There are... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other uh, transportation departments often. Uh, there, there are a lot of buildings that are owned by the federal government and are federal property and courts, federal courthouses, so on. That would be a great one. <laughs> um, and what they're proposing is that uh, Biden could declare a national health emergency caused by this Supreme Court ruling because women's health is at risk now. In, in some states, by the way, like Texas, uh, where they won't accept Medicaid 
uh, because they because Medicaid will pay for abortions. Uh, poor people can't even get health care. And so for women, uh, the abortion clinics, which also provide uh, for uh, gynecological exams and, you know, basic health for women, um, those are the only places offering help that women uh, without resources can go to. And now they're being shut down. So, so by declaring a national health emergency, Biden would be able to allocate as much money as he needed to to set up the abortion and women's health clinics in federal buildings. And those would be exempt from any state laws. So you could go to any state that passed you know, these instant laws outlawing abortion to follow the Supreme Court uh, and provide these services on federal property. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask a question that's maybe a, a little silly, Dave, because I, I feel like like what you're pointing to is definitely something that could happen. I mean, I feel like Joe Biden could use uh, uh, executive action to really make abortion access available uh, across the country. And so my question then is why? I mean, according to them, they're very concerned about this whole issue and uh, uh, the access to uh, abortion and, and things like this. Um, but I mean, we don't see any sort of real fight back. It's almost as if the Democrats have kind of thrown up their hands and like, oh, well, all we can do is sit around and wait till November. And so why why does this seem to be the position and posture uh, of the Democrats when this is obviously so harmful to the people that they claim are their base? Well, in my cynical view, I think that the Democrats want nothing to be done until election uh, because this is a great issue for them at a time that uh, they're sinking in the polls. You know, the one thing that's really uh, got people riled up is this uh, canceling of the abortion right to abortion. Even Republican women are angry. Uh, a friend of mine in Kansas told me that a lot of, of uh, Republicans in Kansas are furious at this. So, um, you know, it's a real opportunity, that, as the Democrats view it, to, to uh, rev up the voters who weren't very interested in them. Uh, and so why should they do anything that to really deal with it beforehand if that might um, weaken the uh, incentive to get out and vote? I don't think it would be true. I think actually if the, if the Democrats actually did something— it would make people say, well, maybe we really should vote for them because maybe then they really will do even more when they're elected. But the truth is, as you sort of intimated but didn't mention, uh, you know, the Democrats have been uh, condemning, you know, defending Roe v. Wade and saying that it should be, you know, legislated uh, and using that as and that, you know, people need to protect the Supreme Court to protect Roe. That's their biggest argument. Uh, we need to keep the, the liberal judges. That's been their best argument, you know, only argument really sometimes to get people to vote for them. So when they've come in, like with Obama and Biden uh, having a majority in Congress uh, and in the first term, uh, did they do anything about Roe to, you know, lock it in as law? No, they didn't. Did they push to get um, the, uh, you know, some judges to retire immediately so when they had that strong majority and the popularity to replace them with, you know, like like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with uh, younger liberal 
judges? No. In fact, when they've put in judges, they haven't even been liberals. They've been people like Elena Kagan, who's a corporatist. Uh, so um, they, they've been terrible uh, as a opposition party. They've been limp, tame, uh, neoliberal supporters of the status quo and of the wealthy people and corporations. Yeah. And since we know the Democrats aren't going to do any of the things on uh, your list that you uh, uh, enumerated in your piece, is this a springboard for an actual people's party, a third party uh, that could effectively challenge both the Democrats and the Republicans in, uh, I think, more importantly, local elections in the near term, but certainly um, eventually in national elections? Yeah, I think um, but the problem is that, you know, when you talk with people who are fairly progressive uh, about this kind of idea of a third party, they shy away from it because they always think short term and they say, well, if we start a third party, we're taking party votes away from Democrats in the state legislatures and in Congress. And so we end up with Republicans running the show, which, you know, there there is a certain merit to this. Uh, and I would say that the best time to start a third party would not be uh, during a critical election like this one during election year, when there's months to go before you have a uh, critical election that could bring fascists into control of the government. So, you know, you sort of have to vote for Democrats to prevent fascism, but the time to do it would be right after that election, when there's a year of no, you know, you know no major elections to deal with. So, but it never happens. You know, there's this very, it, it has to happen someday if we're going to rescue this country and, and, you know, deal with climate change and all the things that require an anti-corporatist party. But um, this is a very, I, I don't know, you know, this is a very critical year. How do you get people to see that? I would vote for a third party, I think, but I, I even I would would have to look at the situation at the last minute and see whether Democrats are going to squeak by, because if they're not, and if it really looks like we're going to have a, you know, a wipeout uh, in both houses of the Congress enough to even override vetoes, um, then the country's in real trouble. And I and I would say also that you know Biden is uh, it has been happy to have a Republican Senate because he doesn't have to really do anything. He can talk good and know that nothing he does is going to interfere with his rich supporters. Yeah. And I mean, I tend to agree that it's difficult to see um, a party like this coming together because of all the restrictions of the current system, which is why I think that, you know, uh, it's most important that we really build a movement uh, out of which, you know, the vehicle can be sort of uh, uh, developed to actually make this change. Well, we thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're marking the 13th anniversary of the coup in Honduras and how that impacts conditions in the country today. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Vicky Cervantes, North America coordinator of the Honduras Solidarity Network. Vicky, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Vicki, we've recently marked uh, 13 years since the 2009 coup in Honduras that deposed the democratically elected president Manuel Zelaya and uh, replaced him with Juan Orlando Hernandez, a narco oligarch who just this year was actually indicted on drug trafficking and firearm charges being extradited to the United States from Honduras and uh, is currently being governed under the uh, progressive uh, uh, leadership of Giamara Castro. Now, you know, this uh, uh, 13-year uh, history, I think, has had a serious impact on Honduras in uh, uh, a number of ways. Of course, the uh, Hernandez government really only be able to uh, stay in place with the assistance of uh, Washington. And with all there is to go into here, uh, uh, Vicky, I was hoping you could just sort of break down some some of the history of how this coup even came about and how have the people of Honduras been living with it in the time since? Sure. Well, in 2009, on June 28th, the Honduran military, ordered by a section of the Congress politicians, so it was a political military coup, stormed the presidential residency, kidnapped then-President Manuel Zelaya, put him on an airplane in Tegucigalpa, made a stop-off at the U.S. air base about an hour from Tegucigalpa, uh, which is, of course, of great significance. They stopped there, then continued on their way to Costa Rica, where they, they dropped him off on the tarmac at the airport in Costa Rica. Uh, and so that's the... the the cool coup itself. But what led up to this, I think, is really important because Manuel Zelaya was elected in 2006 at a time when there was real change coming through elections in Latin America. We had uh, uh, Hugo Chavez had been reaffirmed and survived a coup attempt in, in 2002. Uh, there were elections of progressive governments in Bolivia, in Ecuador, Brazil, uh, and and Paraguay. So there was a lot going on. And Mel Zelaya claimed when he was elected, and some people weren't sure it was true, but he said he wanted to join this this movement in Latin America to create a, La- a Latin American-based unity, sovereignty, and independence, to benefit the people. And although people were somewhat skeptical in Honduras at first, because he came from just one of the regular uh, traditional two-party system parties and from a landowning family, nonetheless, over the course of, of his presidency, he started implementing reforms. And most importantly for the people, he started holding dialogues with the social movements, with the indigenous, the campesino, the Garifuna, Afro-Honduran people, the feminists, the labor movement, and asking them what they wanted. And he started implementing reforms 
uh, such as land reform. He passed a presidential decree that resolved uh, about 25 well-known land conflicts to the benefit of the campesinos. He declared that he was in favor of women in Honduras having some kind of right to abortion, uh, as well as contraception. He denounced violence against women, and he sat down with the LBGT community to discuss a commitment to rights for the LGBT community, which, of course, had none at that time before his, before his administration. He reformed the minimum law, the minimum wage law, uh, many, many, many things. And he did uh, join ALBA and get closer and closer to the governments in South America that were on this same kind of path, finally calling for the idea of a refounding, a constituent assembly to refound Honduras. And so on June 28, 2009, what was supposed to happen was a, a public referendum on whether or not to include a vote about reforming the Constitution, convening a constituent assembly during the regularly scheduled presidential elections in November of 2009, a time, I might add, where he was going to be leaving office uh, after that election. It was a general election in Honduras. All of this, and I think the, the idea of the Constituent Assembly pushed it over, and pushed it over the line for the oligarchs in Honduras who were outraged at Zelaya in general, and they felt this was going way too far, and also the U.S. And remember that the U.S. had a long historical stake in controlling Honduras. They uh, dominated Honduras uh, militarily and economically, all, especially starting during the 1980s, but actually going back to the early uh, 1900s with the Banana Republic. So all of this came together in this moment. A brutal coup was unleashed because they didn't just kidnap Zelaya. They went, they went out into the streets and they started eliminating leaders of the resistance movement that sprang up immediately. The Honduran people hit the streets, they blocked the roads in the rural areas, and they kept this resistance up for 13 years. And that coup uh, that was fomented by the U.S. is actually uh, mentioned and admitted to practically in Hillary Clinton's book, her latest, uh, her last book, Hard Choices. What did she admit about this coup? And, and what, what was the hard choice that she claimed she had to make in being involved in it? Yes. Um, at the time of the coup, there was an interesting thing because Obama, President Obama, made a kind of weak statement, but he condemned the coup as going back to the old bad days and said it would be a bad, it was a bad thing. But very quickly, her, the State Department, which was under Hillary Clinton at the time, started carrying out a different policy, and Hillary publicly uh, did, has said that she did everything possible with her power, which of course is big power, to keep Zelaya out of the country and to move forward, and that's, I like, I'm putting that in air quotes, to move forward in Honduras to reestablishing uh, stability, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so she and the State Department and finally President Obama as well intervened strongly and forced the, the Honduran resistance and forced the Laya uh, to an agreement that was 
one-sided agreement because the coup makers never fulfilled the various little things they were supposed to fulfill. And they pushed forward to hold the elections in November 2009 under military occupation by the Honduran military in the streets where people were in jail, where people were being killed. They held this election and installed the first coup government, which was uh, President Pepe Lobo, from the National Party, which is the same party as Juan Orlando Hernandez. Hernandez takes power in 2013. So Hillary admitted to all this in her book, although it's worth noting that when she ran for president again, she reissued, when the paperback book came out, she had eliminated all the details about Honduras. But it had already been published in hardback, so that's how we know that she admitted it. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, Vicky, what has the role of the social movements inside a Honduras been like in terms of uh, uh, their struggle for, you know, real democracy and human rights there under this cool reality? And, you know, I'm thinking of groups like Copine and Ofrene and things like this. Of course, you know, uh, one of the major uh, incidents of this most recent period was the assassination of Alberta Carceres, you know, a warrior for indigenous and environmental rights. And so how has the factor of the social movement sort of played out in terms of Honduras over these last 12 years? Right. Well, the social movements, the organized social movements became, you could say, the structure and backbone of the general resistance to the coup. Because they were already organized, they had very clear political analysis and they knew how to bring people together to organize what became the National Front against the coup, the National Front uh, of People's Resistance, I think, FNRP in Spanish. So you had Copin, you had Ofrane, you had the left-wing labor movement, uh, a well-known leader, Carlos, uh, Carlos H. Reyes, was a part of this, the student movement. These are people who had been in resistance, and in the case of the indigenous movements, the black movements and the and the campesino or small farmer movements, they were always in permanent resistance because their the changes required to to meet their demands and their needs as communities are so profound that it, it takes more than just a change of government to meet them. So they all immediately came together and started organizing resistance. There was a spontaneous resistance in the streets, as you can imagine, and there's amazing photos and videos. I, anyone who's interested, just search up Honduras Coup 2009 and you'll find amazing footage. But it was the organized social movements, uh, the leadership of Berta Cáceres, uh, the leadership of Ofrane, of human rights organizations like COFADE, the Committee of the Family of the Disappeared, um, and the labor movements and campesinos who immediately created a structure and an organization to bring together all the disparate and mass movements of people and spontaneous outrage into an organized resistance movement. And it's that resistance movement that carried on for 13 years, despite the country going down the tubes economically, socially, the militarized, incredible violence growing, uh, repression all times. It's, they maintain this resistance for 13 years. Part of the resistance movement began to build an electoral uh, front of resistance, which became Libre, the Libre Party. And it's their victory 
against the the coup governments and the narco dictatorship that should be and was being celebrated uh, this year. for the first time in 13 years, Honduras is having a legitimate government, not a, a dictatorship. Yeah, you know, Vicky, in our last couple of minutes, I'm wondering, you know, for those of us, for, for progressive-minded people, for anti-imperialists, why do you think it's important that we continue to have a solidarity uh, with Honduras and just to continue to be aware of what has happened there and what continues to happen as it sort of uh, emerges from this last sort of dark period? Sure. I think that it's really important that we maintain our solidarity in sort of a, a two prongs, or there's two two issues. One is continued solidarity against U.S. interference and pressure that is being carried out as we speak against the, the Omar Castro's government. They have to have some relationship with the U.S. There's a very complex dependency. At the same time, the U.S. is openly pressured the Amado's government on uh, domestic policy as well as international policy, and the U.S. is is using money to increase that pressure rather than using money to actually help anything. So that's one side of our solidarity that's very important. The other side is our continued solidarity with the social movements and their demands, some of which are critiques of the Amado's government, and that's not a bad thing. We have to stand with the social movements because they are the permanent resistance that can win real sovereignty and real change in Honduras. And that's important because Honduras obviously continues to be a great geopolitical concern for U.S. imperialism and to play a role. And it can also play a role in a new movement in Latin America with governments that are again attempting to win their sovereignty and to move forward for their people. such so We have the recent elections in Colombia. Uh, we have new elections coming up in Brazil. So I think all those things are important and show the, the need uh, and the importance of solidarity with Honduras. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Vicky, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie, glad to be back. Absolutely. And Nate, it's the most wonderful time of the year. July 1st, it's Bobby Bonilla Day, where uh, a former professional baseball player, Bobby Bonilla, collects another million dollars from the New York Mets ball club. Um, I was hoping you could help us understand how this was even possible and how Bonilla is able to uh, collect this kind of money even years after he stopped being uh, uh, active. Yeah, so I mean, it, the number is actually one point one nine three million, and uh, this was the twelfth consecutive year. 
I mean, it has a lot to do with Bernie Madoff. Um, the former owners of the New York Mets, the Will Pond family, uh, were heavily invested in the Ponzi scheme uh, Bernie Madoff ran. Um, so when you go back to around the turn of the century, um, you have Bonilla who came back to the Mets in 1999 after playing for him from like 92 to 95. They, they were trying to sign some other players at that point, and they only owed him $5.9 million when they released him after 99. But they decided to do a deal with like compounding interest um, that would begin payments to him 12 years ago from now. I mean, 12 years ago, going back from 2022, you know, with obviously at that point, having no idea that, uh, that they were going to go down with that Bernie Madoff. And, uh, you know, the irony is that now the team is owned by the second largest hedge fund, you know, manager in the world, Steve Cohen. I mean, like he has 1.193 million. He goes, but, but, you know, but he is owed. It's really turned into a joke. There's even a cell phone company that's like doing commercials like about, you know, for a hundred dollars a year. So like the next, however many years, you know, you can lock in this rate or something like that with us. <laughs> and Bobby Bonilla comes out and like, you know, <laughs> smiles and, and says like, that sounds like a deal. And, uh, you know, but it's just, uh, you know, good for him, I guess. And, uh, and, and it, it has turned into a, uh, a running joke, but in terms of, uh, yeah, it really does go back to the Bernie Madoff scheme, the old bets ownership that was, uh, you know, assured that like you know, they could defer payments and then try to you know, you know, just so I guess not have as much money on the books that year, and they were counting on the made-off returns coming in with uh, those wonderful ten percent interest you know um, earnings every year, uh, more than covering Bobby Bonilla. So um, didn't really work out that way for them. And I mean, as much as this is really funny, and and I think it is good for Bobby Bonilla, I do think this points to uh, the issue that we always bring up of capitalism in sports and how, you know, a sports franchise uh, thought that they would, or at least the owner of a sports franchise thought that they would profit uh, off of uh, Bernie Madoff's pyramid scheme, and they ended up paying uh, way more than they thought they were going to get. And and I guess maybe this is this is a, a, a cautionary tale in a weird way that, you know, capitalism doesn't always pay, Nate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only thing I would say that uh, for, for the overwhelming vast majority of us, yes, for Steve Cohen, the turn under the Mets, though, unfortunately, it's $1.19 million. Is about the same as a trip to sport, what a trip to Starbucks would be like for the most of us. Um, but uh, yes, absolutely, it doesn't always pay, and that's uh, always is uh, you know being charitable there. So uh, that's uh, that should be a cautionary tale. And uh, if you're not a, a mega hedge fund guy like Steve Cohen is now, you know a deal like this would would, would uh, not be the best for uh, for, for to say the least. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, switching gears a little bit here, Nate, uh, Breaking the Lines recently published an article entitled The Cesspit of Corruption, How Qatar Bought a World Cup. Now, the World Cup is always uh, a major popular uh, global uh, sporting event. And with all the excitement around it, I think that sometimes a lot of people may not necessarily be aware of some of the nasty business that really goes uh, into organizing these events. So I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, what, what is the role of Qatar as it pertains to the World Cup? And what does it tell us about how these types of events generally come together? 
Well, I mean, yeah, good point. I mean, like this, this applies to the Olympics too. Um, the World Cup, Olympics, I think it's easy to make comparisons there because they both involve the building of massive infrastructure projects that then are essentially white elephants in a lot of places look no further than Brazil, which, um, in the span of two years in the mid 2010, um, had the World Cup and, and the, uh, and the Olympics. And there's the amount of money that was poured into that is astounding. And there are stadiums that are, you know, in this already just falling apart that are not being maintained. Um, that huge numbers of people um, had to put in laborious hours and hours and you know, days and weeks and years building. And uh, and with Qatar, like, we'll just start off with, I think, the most egregious part, um, what they call the kind of the guest worker program. Uh, that really involves like workers coming in from parts of the African continent, um, South Asia, um, a lot of people from Nepal, particularly Pakistan, Bangladesh, and then uh, they uh, take their passports, essentially. There are no labor laws. Um, if your boss decides not to pay you, then just uh, that's too bad. And uh, they, a lot of this stuff started coming out. And it, you know, it increasingly led to more and more media stories about the number of workers that died building stadiums there, not just because um, of unsafe conditions, some of it being the heat, um, cardiac issues, uh, you know, just other stuff that, you know, just, People who died, we don't really know why, um, and their families are looking for answers. So that's sort of the backdrop. But to be specific with regards to FIFA, you have a guy, Seth Blatter, that has a re- had a relationship with a very influential um, Qatari kind of business baker, a guy named Ben Ben Haman. And Ben Haman was uh, had been Mohammed Ben Haman, that is, was president of the Asian Football yeah. Confederation between 2002 and 2011. And the bid to get this happened in 2010. And it's just, I mean, it's, it, it, it's all, it's in the open now. The Times of, of, um, in, in England, they uh, put out a story, Expose Day in 2014. Uh, he was going around the African continent, paying for junkets to like leaders of every country from Namibia to the Ivory Coast and getting all sorts of, you know, people on board with that in exchange for really not that much payment. You seem like, you know, it should be more, but you have building some like, you know, football fields in the country. And you know, it just shows how when you have countries that are, you know, uh, impoverished because of imperialism, like, you know, how you know, you know they're uh, willing to leaders and whatnot, it, it, they can be bought for relatively not that much uh, in the grand scheme of things. And then, um, so that got exposed. That bladder has been, uh, had a long time ban. I think this, May end in 2023, but maybe extended. Um, so he was heavily involved as the president of FIFA. Nicolas Sarkozy, another guy who was the president of France, had a, had a big role in this too, and getting an influential power broker that was uh, going to be voting on the, uh, the the World Cup being awarded in 2010. When they when they voted in 2010 to award the 2022 World Cup in voting for Qatar, um, and part of it had to do with. Um, you know, using not even necessarily strong army people, but just making it known he wanted that to happen. And then basically the deal was that, like, the quid pro quo was that the Qataris were going to buy Paris Saint Germain, uh, which is like the seventh most profitable or valued um, sports franchise in the world, uh, his favorite football club in France. And, uh, you know, it just so happens that the Qataris did buy that club after they were awarded the World Cup. I mean, the list can go on and on for the corruption, but I mean, it's just a little 
synopsis, I guess. So, but, you know, this, this, and, and not to mention that, like, this is the first time ever a World Cup has ever been played in the winter and, they're, and, and totally disrupting the traditional, like, you know, football season, you know, the, the professional leagues, uh, the whole calendar of everything, um, because it's simply not able to be played during the summer with the heat. And uh, there really hasn't been a long-standing football tradition in Qatar, like at all. Um, it's not like they have a big domestic, you know, uh, you know, like culture of like, you know, of football. It, it, it's, uh, it doesn't exist. It's purely all spectacle and all about just like you know the global elite essentially being able to put on a put on a show to build up Qatari soft power in the world and use it to make relationships with uh, you know other powerful powerful brokers around the world so uh it's pretty ridiculous even claims of like fake air conditioning uh, out, outdoor air conditioning uh, they had some scientists got come out early on that they were going to be able to like oh well, they create these outdoor air conditioning systems and it'll, it'll it'll work it'll be cool and it obviously wasn't going to work so this whole thing's rotten from the core yeah, and you know, Nate, what has happened to the people who were exposed in this uh, 2014 expose of this corruption in the World Cup? Are are they still major players in the sport, uh, or have they just you know kind of transferred that corruption to other people? Well, I mean, uh, I'd say it's pretty hard to believe that that corruption has been transferred to other people. But Mohammed bin Bin Haman, um, he has been banned for life. Ladder is currently still banned. Um, it's banned maybe coming up next year, the year after, but um, it was, I think, 10 or 12 years when it, when it came down. Um, should have been longer, probably. And uh, there were, uh, and there were, there, yeah, there were other, uh, everybody that was involved and in, in the, in the payments that were going out for these big trips, especially trips around the African continent to different, different countries. Um, you know, to just entertain, really. And then the idea being like, all right, well, we just showed you a good time, so you know what to do when you vote. Um, those people, they had to clean fit, you know, you know, safe face and clean house. But, I mean, I have very little confidence that, that just by, you know, rearranging the, the the cast of characters, that the new cast is somehow a bunch of, you know, anti-corruption you know, warriors that are, you know, really, you know, fundamentally committed to transforming FIFA into something that's you know really above ground because by the nature of it, it, it I mean it, it 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 exists within this global imperialist system we live under. It's like that that when we know the way that the business operates in this world with predatory relationships and uh, the global north and you know the uh, dictating terms of the global south, um, you know, in an exploitative way that, that you know yeah, kind of a lot of countries don't really have a choice because the, the alternative is even worse. So. You know that that's the world we live in, and FIFA exists within that world. Can we really expect FIFA to not reflect that reality? Yeah, and you know, I mean, again, I just feel like this sort of shows that the darker side of these things. I mean, the, the exploitation of workers, and you know, Nick, it just shows that these types of major events. And you noted the the Olympics uh, also a little earlier, which definitely has this uh, similar history of you know increased police presence, uh, uh, displacing communities to build these massive stadiums that are often then sort of uh, uh, abandoned. And when you talk about these junkets and all these sorts of things that that go into this, I mean, it's a reminder that these 
these events at the end of the day are just major money makers and uh, uh, kind of PR campaigns in and of themselves. And they're absolutely designed to uh, uh, generate these kinds of super profits and which I think kind of gets uh, obscured by, you know, the, the pageantry and, you know, the, the ritual of the thing itself, you know? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it really is about projecting soft power for a country like Qatar, and not and Qatar's not unique in that sense. It's just right. this really took the, I guess, the the football watching world, international football watching world fandom by surprise because you know there's so many countries that you know lit, eat, sleep, and breathe you know this game, and you know Qatar. I mean, it's, it's a very small Gulf monarchy, um, has some of the most repressive labor laws in the world, and. Um, they uh, and it's a very relatively small elite that are even considered Qatari, you know, and uh, and they and like I said, it's not like been this long-standing culture of like you know a, a football culture there, so it, it immediately kind of like smelled off a little bit, like it wasn't <laughs> what you would just think would happen. Um, and but I also don't want to give the impression that this like is somehow uniquely you know corrupt right that these kind of deals don't happen whether the world cup's being awarded to paris or wherever else but it is pretty corrupt it is pretty corrupt (laughs) oh that's a fact that's a fact and another thing i wanted to touch on today nate was this news that ucla and usc two powerhouse schools seem poised to join uh the big 10 conference and uh so what what do you think motivated this decision from these schools and do you think there will be ripple effects across college sports well it's just all about the benjamin sean i mean this is another example of the consolidation of college football into essentially what what we now see what what way it's working out and what's probably going to be two super conferences and then like a confederation of the ones that are of the left behind i guess uh, you know, the schools, uh, and those two conferences would be the Big Ten, which is roughly the, you know, historically for their footprint's been the Midwest. Schools like Ohio State, Michigan, Wisconsin, kind of their flagship institutions. Um, and then, you know, the SEC, you know, the likes of Alabama, LSU, Georgia, uh, and, and many more. Um, and they've been expanding. Um, you wonder how many teams they can keep expanding to. And it's like, if the leads get so big, if you even, you know, how often these teams will even be able to play each other, uh, my traditional rivalries and whatnot. So this is all this, you have an era of name, image, and likeness, uh, you know, that uh, has upended the traditional model of college football and made it so that so many of these fans that, that like the idea, this, that this romanticized idea of like, you know, playing for your school and it's the, the name on the front and not the name on the back and whatnot. There's a real angst and like there's a real uh, kind of a, almost just resignation to the fact that, that, that this game is, is essentially moving in a more, it's been a professional a division one high, you know, high level division one. It's been professionalized for a while. It's just, that it wasn't, they weren't being paid and they, they still aren't being paid as workers. They're being, they're able to make money up an image of likeness, but the TV deals monsters. And, and it really that culturally for people who don't know much about college football, this couldn't be, a starker reminder, just like how, you know, this system, it, to me, it's like a, it, it mirrors like the decay sort of we're seeing the system because the stability of the United States is, is very much in question now politically, um, socially. Um, and then you look at UCLA, USC, really like the stalwarts, like kind of flagship programs at the Pacific 12, the Pac-12 conference, 
for years, going back to the 1920s. And they'd always, every year, until recently in college football, you'd have the winner of that conference, the Pac-12, the West Coast, play the winner of the Big Ten on New Year's Day and the Rose Bowl. And then now they're, they're blowing up even the semblance of tradition that they like tried to hold up, they, they tried to hold on to it you know, up to this point. And to me, it just shows it's a window into another instant, another example of like this was the tendency towards monopolization uh, under capitalism that I guess that Marx wrote about. And uh, but the, the, the uh, basically the, the money deals were, were much bigger that USC and UCLA could get. And under the logic um, that we we operate under. They have sort of a fiduciary duty, their athletic directors and boards, to do what's best for their schools, right? So everybody just doing what's in their own self-interest, and that gets UCLA and USC into a conference where they're going to be playing conference games against teams like, I mean, not only Ohio State, Michigan, whatnot, but Maryland and Rutgers. So imagine how this affects all the other sports that aren't football. Since football is driving all this, everybody else is just along for the ride. So that means... You know, women's volleyball, they're going to have to travel to Piscataway, you know, New, Piscataway, New Jersey, or New Brunswick, New Jersey to play Rutgers, you know, and in the middle of, you know, school. So, you know, so much for the student athlete thing. So, taking those cross country flights to play some, you know, volleyball games or basketball games or whatever the sport may be, um, it, it's just, it's, it's wild. And, uh, and I think that we're going to get more details coming out, but it's, uh, it's all about the Benjamins at the end. Absolutely true. And, you know, making a quick pivot with the last minute or so we have left, what's the update on the Deshaun Watson case uh, coming out of the NFL? Yeah, so he settled 20 of the suits against them. Uh, There there were four more that were pending. I think then Tony Busby, um, the attorney for the plaintiffs, had two more filed. Um, They also declared the Houston Texans a defendant, too, that they were party to this and, and understood what was going on um, that had to do with Deshaun Watson, essentially um, really whatever his motivation really enjoyed using Instagram as a way to reach out to female, only female massage therapists to set up, you know, but usually DM them and say like any way you can meet in like the next two or three hours. I got this hotel room, come here. And, um, you know, you, you want to hear about the details, you, you can check it out. I'm not going to talk. It, it's pretty explicit, but uh you know, it, it was uh, the, the grand jury twice did not bring criminal charges. So then in March, even with all this stuff pending, he convinced the Cleveland Browns to go ahead with this trade for him from the Houston Texans. And they gave him a, a five-year, $230 million fully guaranteed contract, which teams do not usually give out. And, um, and then all this starts dropping more. And now it's coming out. The NFL just concluded a three-day um, here, set of hearings or whatever with people under oath and whatnot, or, or they were doing investigative stuff. And if he lied in any way to them, um, it's major issues because the NFL doesn't have to wait for the criminal justice or the civil justice system. They can just say that you've embarrassed the league. And it looks right now that he's going to probably be suspended for the entirety of the uh, 2022 season. Wow. Well, we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, 
yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, July 1st, 2022. Wake up, wake up. It's the first of the month. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call. Never by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 320 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M A V E dot digital. You can also listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kamal Franklin, an organizer with Community Movement Builders in Atlanta, co-founder of Black Power Media and the co-host of the Renegade Culture Podcast. Kamal, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And Kamal, uh, here recently, we've seen a brutal uh, racist police killing of 25-year-old Jalen Walker in uh, Akron, Ohio. And uh, with autopsy reports showing that eight officers fired more than 90 rounds at uh, the 25-year-old, striking him more than 60 times. Now, reportedly, um, this all happened on Monday when, according to police, they tried pulling Walker over for an unspecified traffic violation, saying then that they were forced to chase him after he wouldn't stop and saying during the pursuit, they, quote, reported a firearm being discharged. From the suspect vehicle and saying that uh, at a certain point, Walker jumped out of his moving car where uh, officers continued a chase on foot. According to police, quote, actions by the suspect caused the officers to perceive he posed a deadly threat to them. In response to this threat, officers, excuse me. Officers discharged their firearms, striking the suspect. Now, I don't know how much of a deadly threat someone can be if they jump out of a moving car and run away from you. But nevertheless, this is uh, what the police are saying. They also reported that uh, they found a firearm uh, in the car. But uh, Bobby DiCello, who is the family attorney, is saying that, uh, you know, there's no uh, uh, evidence that this weapon was fired at an officer or whether it was actually in the vehicle at the time of the incident. 
And of course, this is uh, happening while uh, there's a lot of serious conversations around the uh, police here in the United States. I mean, it seems like there almost always is, but particularly, you know, following issues like uh, uh, the terror attacks in Uvalde and uh, in Buffalo. And I mean, I was also just looking at this piece that was published in the American Prospect back in April that discusses how there's um, legal president establishing that cops aren't necessarily obligated to actually protect people or, or nor are they obligated to act in citizens actual interest. And so like I think with a lot of things that are happening right now, Kamau, it seems like people are really beginning to realize that a lot of what we're told about these longstanding uh, institutions, whether it's the police or the Supreme Court, these things that we were told that we should, you know, champion and support and be happy exist, actually do not operate to serve us really at all. You know what I mean? And so, you know, as the issue of racist police terror continues and and people are really, I think, waking up to the fact that the police, you know, straight up don't keep us safe. Uh, I mean, it just really feels like we might be turning a page here and that uh, uh, the movement against racist police terror very well may be able to gain gain some new steam as some of this uh, newer skepticism around the police uh, continues to develop. Yeah, I, I'm hoping that you're right about that, because I think, uh, as you stated correctly, all evidence shows that the police are protected by the law for any wrongdoing and for any and or most wrongdoing they engage in. Uh, but yet they have uh, no obligation whatsoever, uh, considering what their role in society is supposed to be. Uh, if you listen to establishment authorities about it, the role of the police to protect us from crime, uh, to stop crime, to make us safe in general. Um, and you're right, as, as uh, recent uh, uh, rulings have, uh, I think, reestablished or reconcurred what the what uh, the Supreme Court has said over the years, is that the Constitution um, and or state law in any jurisdiction gives the the police uh, or any government official uh, any have any duty or right to protect individuals from harm. Um, that it, it, I think one opinion went as far as to state that the police can watch someone attack you, uh, refuse to intervene, and still not be in violation of the Constitution. Um, and so if that is the case, and obviously it's stated that it is such, it means the police are really not there to protect us from crime or have any obligation whatsoever to protect us uh, when it comes to issues of safety and to protect us from harm. But again, as in the case you just illustrated, the police can cause much harm uh, and get off scot-free. I think even in the case that you referred to, after shooting this person, firing more than 90 rounds and shooting this person uh, 60 times, they still handcuffed this person um, and waited for the coroner to come and pronounce this this uh, particular individual dead. Uh, there was another story, I'm forgetting which city it was in, but that was similar to the Freddie Gray incident in Baltimore from a few years ago, where the police made a sudden stop and, you know, was traditionally called the paddy wagon. Uh, uh, the person was handcuffed, and that, that person flew out of their seat because there's no seat belts 
um, in the in the in the um, in the van, and basically the person broke their neck. And the police uh, didn't believe that the person was really injured. They continually uh, uh, pushed him, shoved him, dragged him, um, saying that he was all right, that he was faking it. And it turned out later, once he was examined, of course, that he had a broken neck, which he uh, sustained from being tossed around in the wagon, uh, which the police were driving. So these type of things happen over and over again, and they point only to one answer, that the police are not here to provide public safety or protection for us. They're here to act on the whim of government officials who act on the whim of corporate uh, and billionaires, co- corporate officials and billionaires in terms of what their desires and needs are in protecting property. Yeah. And I'm wondering how, you know, this particular case fits into uh, the recent Supreme Court ruling about, uh, you know, the the uh, Customs and Border Patrol uh, and other, quote unquote, immigration officials being able to, you know, basically kick in your door and and perform uh, and an arrest without a warrant within 100 miles of the border. Uh, the uh, evisceration of uh, protections under a Miranda rights, you know, you cannot sue the police if they do not issue Miranda rights uh, um, when they arrest you. I mean, how, how does this all fit into the way the Supreme Court is uh, clearly ruling on behalf of the police? But I think the larger question for me, Kamau, is what does what do these rulings say about what the Constitution is and what it really means in regard to the protections we thought we had under the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, we're, we've always been in dangerous times. We're entering particularly dangerous times when you have a Supreme Court, which, as we know, is six to three, very conservative, very right wing, um, and in some ways very white nationalists and uh, acting against the interests of most of the folks here who live in this country, particularly the interests of black and brown people. So we're in a time where uh, these officials, these court officials, have basically decided that they are going to change uh, established doctrine. They're going to give police more protection. They're going to give prosecutors more protection, more rights, and that they're going to take away more rights from basic citizens. Uh, And again, as they're giving these rights over to the prosecution and police, they're giving them rights to harm us, to control us, to arrest us, to use legal uh, mechanisms and means um, to control any outrage or pushback against their um, against the the work that they do against us in in a in, in the first place. So we have these times where I, I think we really have to be extra careful um, and really have to dig deep in terms of our organizing because the courts have officially sanctioned uh, the government in some ways, again, particularly with the enforcement arm of the government, to do a lot of different things and to expressly give them a lot of power, which is going to be detrimental to the rest of us as so-called citizens here in the United States. Yeah, and since we're discussing about how the cops are not obligated to actually protect us, even though, you know, their motto is literally to protect and serve. I think we have to ask the question then, well, then what is the real role of the police? And I think that this brings us to, I think, uh, a more pertinent question about the class character of policing in a capitalist state. Now, you all may have heard me say this on the show before, and I'll say it again, is that under any system, the police are in service to the state. 
But what that looks like is determined by the character of that state. So under a capitalist system, when uh, police talk about how they're in place to protect and serve, that's true. But what they serve is the interest of the ruling class and what they protect is their property. And that is precisely why we continue to see these incidents play out the way they do. That's why it's necessary from the standpoint of the capitalist class um, to have the police uh, overrepresented in a, a poor working and oppressed community. It's to serve as a military solution to the social problems generated by the capitalist system itself. And so the police there then act sort of as a lid on the pot of the uh, uh, simmering frustrations wrought by the contradictions of this system. This is why there's so much hubbub whenever there's any kind of um, a, a property damage, you know, during a, a protest or something like that. And you have these elected officials that treat like, you know, a window being shattered is somehow the same as a life being taken. That to them is violence. They say, oh, calm down to violence or don't be violent. They're always asking, well, are you going to be peaceful? Always find that very insulting when when, you know, people are gathering or you're going to have a demonstration or a march or a rally and someone asks, well, are you all going to be peaceful? Well, don't ask us. Ask the police. They're the ones that got the guns. They got flashbang grenades. They got rubber bullets. They got pepper spray, tear gas. And above all else, they have the support of an entire system and state apparatus behind them that literally allows them to kill and get away with it. So all your questions about peace should be directed to them, not those of us who only seek to uh, uh, express our rage and discontent at yet another uh, uh, injustice of this system. But see, you know, from the when, when we talk about it from the standpoint of consciousness, Kamal, even though all of that may seem apparent, I think it's very skewed in the mind of uh, the rank and file person in the United States because we're told our whole lives that the police are these valiant crusaders for justice and they're your first line of defense against everything bad. And while there may be some issues, ultimately they're necessary because they help lock up the bad guys. You know what I mean? And so there's like this deep psychological kind of almost, you know, Stockholm syndrome kind of deal to where we're almost sort of made to love our oppressors when all that does is to further protect this system that's exploiting us in so many other ways. You know what I mean? No, you're completely correct. You know, and even as you were saying that, I'm thinking about even the organizers and the other folks, too, who are supposed to be progressive or leftist or liberal who are on our, supposed to be on our side. They also put forth the question as the media puts forth the question. We should make sure that these these protests are nonviolent. We should name it a nonviolent protest. The first thing that we should say in our press releases is that we plan a nonviolent protest. And and you're right, the opposite question is never acts at the forefront. Will the police be nonviolent? Will the police not attack us um, uh, for expressing our outrage at something that they've already done, that the larger society has already done, that those are not the leading questions, which tells us, again, whose side or what the narrative is around people who fight for their rights, who organize for their rights, who organize against violence in our community by the police. 
Um, the narrative is that we are potentially the violent ones and that the police are the ones who are here for public safety and must control basically the hordes or the masses um, that must put us in our place to make sure that general society should operate. And what that translates into is capital always wants stability. The one thing that capital will want to do in any situation is to create stability. And for them, that means putting down protests. That means putting down uh, uh, uprisings. That means putting down people who have the nerve to argue against the status quo because they want quiet. They don't care if our rights are violated. They don't really care uh, how we feel about things. Of course, they'll put out um, some propaganda statements, but really what they want is just to shut up and shop. Um, and that's the basis of this capitalist system, particularly here in America. It's not only it's work uh, for to be uh, work at underpaid jobs, the jobs don't provide necessarily the safety that we uh, should have, or uh, jobs don't provide us the medical benefits that we deserve. And if we don't do that, they're going to ship those jobs overseas anyway um, and collude and hurt other workers and pay them even less wages. Uh, but other than that, our role besides uh, working to make to, to keep capital going is to give the resources we have right back to capital, which also increases their profits. But Kamal, according to Stacey Abrams down there in Georgia, cops are underpaid too. So, so I mean, shouldn't we be advocating for better pay for cops, according to her? It's amazing that, and, and people have pointed this out, the first tweet that she puts out right on her social media platform to address the issue of wage inequality or uh, the lack of people earning a basic living wage is she chooses with all the unionization that's happening across this country, with all the demands for fairer pay, for uh, better work conditions, for the ability to collectively bargain. Um, the first thing that she decides to mention is the, the role of the wage of police, which, by the way, is quite inaccurate in terms of the pay of most police in Georgia, which is above um, or, or at the medium uh, um, uh, average for for workers here, and you know, and, I, and there's there's a, always a funny dividing line. I take the uh, the stance that I think Brother Drew Ben Wahad, for Black Panther Party member, has taken, is that the police are really not part of the working class. They are part of the of, of a group of soldiers who are here to oppress and suppress the demands of the working class. Um, but Stacey Abrams has now stepped out. She uh, you know has put her, herself forward as some uh, progressive aggressive keeper of the flame for someone who's going to be, who's going to do something different if she gets into office. But again, playing those establishment politics, her first tweet, her first social media post on this particular issue is to talk about the the salary demands or the wages of police. And that shows what side of the fence that someone like that is on. These public officials, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, of course, there are some differences, but they represent the establishment. They represent the established quo, the, the the status quo, which means that they're never for a radical transformation of resources into the hands of working class and poor people in this country. They're here to defend the status quo. They're here to protect the interests of the rich, um, and they don't mind giving some small tidbits here and there, some scraps here and there. But ultimately, they're here to protect the system and keep it as is. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more with uh, Daruba Ben Wahab when he talks about how the police are not a part of the working class because of 
the class character of their uh, uh, of the institution of the police itself, which, of course, we know emanates out of the institution of slavery itself. And this is also precisely why, you know, lots of people for some time now have been calling for the abolition of police unions and why there has been, you know, controversy and conflict within, um, you know, certain labor unions here in the United States because uh, uh, they may have police and, uh, you know, police like figures like security guards and things like that within their ranks, because at base, what a labor union does is advocate for the rights of its members as working people and as workers. But as we've been discussing, the role of the police is to intimidate, harass, terrorize, brutalize and kill workers. And therefore, you know, th- those rights to organize are simply, you know, th- that whole thing is just a, it's a whole other sort of thing. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Kamal Franklin. And Kamal, over the break, I was actually thinking about a comment uh, you made because we were talking about this issue of quote unquote uh, peaceful protest. And it, it made me think about how another uh, crucial role of the police from the standpoint of the capitalist class um, is to squash political dissent. And in reality, there are many, many, many incidents that we can point to where people were, in fact, uh, uh, demonstrating uh, their constitutional rights um, in a peaceful way and were still attacked with it. I mean, I mean, uh, I believe that, you know, just in uh, around, you know, 2020, 2021, I mean, we talked about a lot on the show. I mean, we had comrades uh, up in uh, Colorado who were facing decades in prison, decades, because they lo- they led these large, really massive successful thousands of people strong demonstration against the Aurora uh, Police Department demanding justice around the racist police killing of uh, Elijah McClain. And, you know, during these demonstrations, they didn't encourage anyone to destroy any property or to harm anyone or to harm the police, although they were later um, accused of kidnapping police because, you know, they 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 masked up in front of the uh, in front of the uh, police department. And I guess just standing outside of the thing meant that, you know, they were being kidnapped. But, you know, that's a situation where, you know, a demonstration that I'm sure they would consider peaceful in substance was being attacked. And even thinking about political prisoners like uh, Mumia uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who literally did not do uh, what uh, he has been accused of. And the same goes for Jamil Alamine and things like this. Now, of course, we know as it pertains to political prisoners and prisoners of war, any activity they may have engaged in uh, uh, was within this, uh, uh, within the context of, of a revolutionary struggle. But even still, the point I'm making is that although the state claims to care about quote unquote 
peaceful protest, it actually doesn't matter how peaceful you are if at the end of the day, um, the state decides that it wants to target you. And so it very opportunistically sort of uses that all out of an attempt to try to tamp down on uh, dissent itself. And as we're in this new period, particularly following uh, uh, the decision around abortion rights in this country, which has kicked off uh, just an amazing uh, new round of resistance in the streets, I think that this is an aspect of policing that we should really bear in mind, uh, Kamau. And I actually just thought about, um, I'm sure people probably saw this video, I believe it was Arizona, where cops were shooting fire gas from, I think it was uh, the Arizona State House. It was this government building in Arizona where people had gathered to protest, and they were were being shot with tear gas. That's the response of the state to this peaceful protest where people were understandably upset and angry and scared because this fundamental right has been stripped from so many. But before I, I go off on too much of, of, a, of a rant here, Kamal, I want to uh, give you a chance to get a word in here, Edgewise. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I think you're right. And, and so, uh, you know, the tools of the state are many and vast. And so not only uh, are the frontline soldiers, uh, the police and, and the secondary soldiers is when the state will call it the National Guard. Um, they also obviously use legal mechanisms. And there's a lot of states that are now passing these, uh, what I would call these anti-protest laws, which basically are trying to hold protest organizers uh, civilly liable for actions that happen at the protest. And so if you call the protest as a grassroots organization against an issue of concern, and if uh, uh, folks break away, and if they decide to, to, to uh, smash a window, or um, if uh, folks come and, and counter-challenge the protest and there's a fight and someone's injured, what they're attempting to do is to hold the organization that itself sponsored the protest, was sponsoring the protest, to have that organization uh, liable, civilly liable, and in some cases, I think some states are going so far as to try to see if they can get some criminal statutes passed. And some of this is also similar to what's happening around the issue of voting, where, uh, again, particularly in the South, there are states that are passing laws around uh, the collection of, of, of um uh, people who are filling out uh, um, their 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 applications to to uh, make sure they're recorded so that they could vote, whether or not an organization can do that, how long they can have it, um, whether or not if it's filled out properly, can that organization again be civilly liable uh, in its attempts to register people to vote? And so these things, I think, are are concurrent, as in you can tell that the state is trying to clamp down on both even formal ways in which people are supposed to be able to express their so-called constitutional rights and other ways, as in street protests, in which they're supposed to express um, their so-called constitutional rights, all this in an attempt to limit the power of people over their lives as the state continues to try to grab more and more power to limit people's ability to fight back, to threaten people with not only police action, but to threaten them with court action and, and, and having their resources taken away. All of this is within the grab bag of the state uh, to control protests. But, and again, I think, you know, we've, we've entered we've, a time period over the last 20 to 30 years where the state, particularly 
the right-wing elements of it, are looking to seize as much power as possible as they see demographic shifts happening across the country, and they feel threatened. And what they're doing is unleashing forces, again, extrajudicial and judicial, which will cause people to not fight fight back and not fight for their rights. And I feel like it's it's not a coincidence that these uh, Supreme Court uh, decisions are being um, uh, uh, decided when they are, uh, particularly as the Biden administration is saying nothing really about uh, the way the Supreme Court is uh, eviscerating the rights of people to defend ourselves against the police. As as the United States under the Biden administration uh, continues to be the police of the world or, you know, acting in very much the same way by giving 800 million more dollars to Ukraine in a war in Ukraine that Biden says it literally he says it's not going to end. He announced at the NATO summit that 800 million additional dollars uh, come out. And then he said, we are going to stick with Ukraine. And all of the alliance is going to stick with Ukraine as long as it takes. In fact, make sure that they are not defeated. Now, of all the things that $800 million could have been used for in this country, it would be great if we had a president uh, who is particularly a Democratic president that's supposed to be better than the other guys who would make sure that things like, you know, racist police terrorism uh, is defeated, who would make sure that things like gender violence uh, is defeated. But no, no, he's he is making sure that Ukraine is not defeated by Russia, um, rather than addressing these domestic issues. And I feel like, again, all of this is connected because once more people realize, Kamau, that all of these things are connected, then people are going to get angry. And what better way to control those angry people than a bunch of laws that criminalize protest? Exactly correct. In fact, you know, I'll go further and say it's obvious uh, in terms of the connection of the capitalist class, both domestically and internationally. We all know that this war is a byproduct of NATO's attempt to expand up into the borders of Russia and basically debate to, to attempt to defeat um, or hem in Russia and make it again go through another historic change like it did when its Soviet Union was brought down by capitalist forces and internal forces. It's, it's almost as if they want that same thing to happen again because it wants Russia to return to the historic role of, of a subservient uh, um, uh, 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 provider of resources for Western capitalism. So Western capitalism will not be satisfied until basically Russia is on its knees uh, playing a historic pre-Soviet role uh, as, a, as, a, as a, a, a sort of a poor, a poor brother to the Western capitalist interests. That's what the West is, is actually after. It doesn't want to have any competitions military, uh, uh, militarily, any competing forces militarily of course, but it also wants to use the Russian resources to fuel uh, Western capitalist uh, uh, projects and hegemony. Um, it is, that is the very basis for why we continually have NATO uh, 
pushing up against um, the, the, the borders of Russia and, again, blaming Russia for daring to strike back and say, we've warned you over and over and over and over again that we will not tolerate uh, your alliance hemming us in with military bases all around us, with weapons all around us. So the, the Western interest is obviously to demonize Russia and to use whatever resources are necessary to complete that historic project even as it ignores what's happening domestically and or the consequences domestically. So it's far more important as is the establishment class. Of course, the Democrats want to win the next election. But as we can see from the establishment point of view, it's far more important to press this war and to have its own citizens suffer while it is doing that um, than to give it up or to ignore it or to stop uh, perpetrating the harm that it's doing overseas with its war machine because the people don't matter uh, under the structure of the state in which we live in. What matters is the capturing and control of resources, the capturing and control of people, the capturing and control of land. That is ultimately what's what's important. It's that kind of power, and the rest of us ought to be subservient to that power. I think one of his other statements is that we're going to just have to deal with the gas prices because Ukraine is so important to protect. So imagine that, that the so-called president who is supposed to be progressive and on our side is now telling us that whatever resources we have have to be eaten up because of the involvement in starting a war, which was completely unnecessary in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, when you talk about the demonization of Russia, I mean, I feel like most people in the United States might not even be aware that there is and has been a persistent demonization campaign of both Russia the Russian Federation today and the uh, Soviet Union of old, that goes back years and years and years and years. That's been a consistent project of U.S. imperialism for some time. And in terms of the demonization of, of Vladimir Putin, that's been going on for the entirety of his presidency of Russia. So we're talking about 22 years here. And even when the beginning, when uh, Putin was actually sort of openly making overtures towards uh, uh, the United States in terms of uh, fighting terrorism and uh, all these sorts of things. But, you know, it, it for the interest of imperialism, they had to make uh, Putin out to be like this, you know, snidely whiplash sort of a cartoon style uh, uh, of villain. It's kind of like this uh, this ridiculous trope we hear that, you know, Putin wants to destabilize the West because he just hates democracy so doggone much. Well, for that to happen, that would mean the destabilizing of the countries that are closest geographically to Russia and that ideally uh, uh, would be their partners and that, you know, governments that he actually would want to have good relations with. And so, I mean, this would be a detriment and not a benefit. So when you think about these sorts of things, logically, they, they don't really make any sense. But again, when you're made to see someone as just, you know, a raging ball of pure evil, well, then you'll believe just about anything. But we have a caller on the line here. Wesley, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, you know, when it comes to the whole Russia-Ukraine thing, I think, you know, when you guys bring up the context of NATO, it's very important. And a lot of people don't realize that context at all. They think this is a Russia-Ukraine thing, but this is more of a Russian-NATO thing and Ukraine being used as a pawn by NATO in the West to basically, you know, put Russia in its place. And, you know, I, my question for you guys 
is, you know, since the fall of the Soviet Union, I would say we probably went into a unipolar world. But is this the rebirth of a multipolar world, in your opinion, where we're going to have, you know, some big dogs stepping up against the U.S. and saying enough is enough with your foreign policy and bossing everyone around? Is, Is this what we're coming into, which I personally think would be a good thing? Someone needs to stop our country when it comes to the imperialism we've been committing since our founding. But anyway, thank you for taking my call. Great show as always. Well, thanks a lot, Wesley. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. I appreciate you raising uh, the fundamental uh, proxy nature of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Jackie Lukman, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, all of this is, I think... uh Again, we we say it all the time, and I think we've said it so many times on this show in the past few months, certainly since February. All of this is an indication that the empire is falling. Um, You know, there is not a lot that Joseph Biden can do in particular to continue to prop up this lie of a proxy war. The the cracks are are starting to appear in the facade of, you know, the the justification for the war. Uh, It is because less and less, quote unquote, popular as people continue to suffer economically in this country and around the world. So, I mean, we are at that point um, where we have to seize on the moment to raise these contradictions and issues and point to the fact that this is what this country has always been. And that foreign policy is a direct Uh, reflection of the domestic policy towards certain groups of people. And the domestic policy is the exact reflection of how U.S. wields its foreign policy around the world. And none of that is going to change until the system changes, Sean. That's a fact. Kamal Franklin, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think about what the caller was saying that, you know, I I was thinking about you know, talking about the fall of the Soviet Union. And let's remember what happened. It was the capitalist interest, particularly from the West. Remember people like Larry Summers and others who went in and reconstructed the Soviet and and, and then after the, the, the Russian economy towards the Western orbit, which immediately led to uh, a collapse of the Russian economy uh, that immediately led to uh, living standards being lowered, um, mortality rates uh, uh, going down, all due to the restructure of the economy under the hands of, of, of Western economists and the Western world. It was during that time period that Russia was in some ways brought in uh, to a lot of the Western institutions, to be uh, a player, again, a, a junior partner, but a player. Remember, Russia at that time voted against Iran, Iranian is, uh, interests on the size of the West uh, that caused more sanctions against Iran. And then there was a breaking point. And I think Putin uh, obviously represented the beginning of that breaking point, where, again, looking at the economy, looking at NATO pushing closer uh, to, to Russia, and where a figure like Putin rose and said, like, we will not be your junior partners in this. We have a long history, um, again, of, of being self-sufficient, self, uh, um, uh, of being a player on the world. And so I do think that this is, I mean, we've been uh, going through this for a while, but I think this is obviously bringing up more unity between a country like Russia and China, which is creating a multipolar world where you have other forces who have military power in China. You have a force that has... Uh, uh, a huge amount of economic power. In fact, one of the reasons the Russian economy did not collapse 
the way the West predicted it would with the new sanctions the West put on Russia was because China and India uh, continue to buy and buy in greater amounts Russian oil, which has helped stabilize the economy as the West has been on the attack using their uh, their uh, the, the forms of of, of, of of attack that they've always used, or used for particularly over the last 30 years, which is to sanction countries uh, and, and try to make them fall to their needs. Uh, to their needs, these things have not worked to stop Russia from pushing back against Western dominance. We can talk even a little bit about what took place in Syria, where the West, through the United States, continued to invade and conquer and try to attack. And the Soviet, uh, the, I'm sorry, Russia went in and said, "We are not going to allow." the fall of a figure like Assad, uh, even if there's issues, of course, with Assad and his governing and citizenship and, and the citizens under Assad. But the understanding was this was not about the human rights of the people in Syria, just like this current war is not about the human rights uh, of the people in, in the Ukraine. This is a war around Western aggression into other territories and areas, and their persistent need to defeat anyone who does not completely subject their economy to the ideas of what the West claims are the uh, are the economic needs of the world, i.e., Western capitalist domination over all resources, all people, all land. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-11320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. The Kamal Franklin is here, and we have a caller on the line here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, guys. Great, fantastic show off the chain. I just want to ask your guest uh, a question. The so-called rules-based order with air quotes, what in the heck does that mean? Because the rules-based that I thought were things in the provisions of the United Nations and multilateral and bilateral agreements. So they come up. You know, they had the summit with the Chinese in Alaska somewhere recently, and the Chinese walked out of this thing saying, well, wait a minute, what rules-based order? Where is it in writing what you're describing all this stuff? You mean the U.S.-based order? Can he uh, basically add some clarity to what the rules-based order is? Because I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Thanks. <laughs> well, we appreciate you, as always, Keith, calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Kamau, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's correct. The rules-based order means the institutions that were developed after World War II, the Brenda Woods Conference, in which things like the, the IMF, the World Bank, um, later on things like the G7, the institutions that established the dominance of Western capital over the world, that's the rules-based order. The rules-based order that says that uh, private, uh, pr- private companies uh, have the right to go globally across uh, uh, other countries – 
as they did prior, but the rules-based order was countries will now open up their economies, their borders, to allow these international firms to come in and to participate, even if they have mass capital, to participate against your domestic uh, uh, your domestic companies or your domestic state-run enterprises, and to complain if somehow your domestic companies uh, get support from um, from state entities or from the government itself, uh, because that uh, support may be direct, uh, which is different how they do in the West, where they give the indirect support, because they do it through colleges or uh, through land giveaways or through contracts. They consider that to be legitimate. But if you pour resources into enterprises that are state-run enterprises or state-controlled enterprises, which fill certain societal functions, then, because that is considered a socialist way of doing things, there is complaining because they say that's an unfair advantage to their poor private multi-billion companies that are coming in trying to do those same that same job and take resources away. So this is all about Western dominance internally within individual economies and the scope of having a control and access over the resources of the world. Um, so, of course, if you are a, a, uh, a powerful company and you don't have to submit to Western sanctions uh, and that means that they can't put a chokehold on your economy, it would only make sense that you would say, wait a minute. This rule-based system seems to only help support Western dominance of resources. Again, when we look at the model of China, even you know the West was happy to have China, uh, which is uh, has a state-run economy, which formerly is a communist nation, which which adopted uh, capitalist tools. They were happy to have China open itself up and have workers make toys, and again be a place that provided cheap labor for the Western economies. As soon as the Chinese leadership decided that we were going to do more than that, that they were going to uh, get involved in technology and expand in other areas to make their economy something uh, that could rival the West or take care of their own and get into areas that, te- that traditionally belong to the West, as soon as those things developed, which said that we no longer, not only do we no longer need your technology, but we could actually export our own technology to other parts of the world. People can have opinions around what type of hegemony that could potentially create in the future, but there is no doubt that offering that alternative is what is scaring the West, scaring what I mean is scaring them to believe that they won't have complete control and access over resources anymore. That is what this current, um, and not only this current, that is always what the current, what the, what the wars internationally or the control internationally is about. Lastly, I'll say, when we look at a country close to the United States, like Cuba. The reason that Cuba is blockaded the way it's been and is treated the way it is is not obviously because it's some huge company that can uh, country that can uh, cause some military threat to the United States. It is the threat of the good example that a socialist nation could garner its small resources and distribute redistribute those resources to its people. That if folks started seeing that as a successful alternative to Western development, then other nation states would want to be a part of that. Other people would say, why can't our economy focus that? So they must destroy alternative economies in order to show you, to show you the public, that the only way to run a nation state is the capitalist way, which leads to uh, 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 mass, uh, the masses of resources hoarded to wealthy, rich people and the rest of us suffering day in and day out to survive. 
Definitely. And real quick, I just want to note that uh, we are up to 360 subscribers on uh, By Any Means Necessary's Rumble page. So, you know, we're, we're kind of a big deal. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> big shout out to all 360 of you for your support. Really appreciate that. And of course, uh, support our folks in the chat that check us out every single day. We've got another caller on the line here. Obi, tell us what's on your mind. Thanks for um, hosting me, uh, Sean, Jackie, Kamal. Um, Kamal, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about community control police and what that would look like, um, just because um, that's often used in uh, relation to abolishing the police. Well, thanks a lot, Obi. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Interesting question, uh, Kamal, uh, the issue of community control of the police, something that's been advocated for a long time uh, under different names. But uh, yeah, your, your response to our caller. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's something that traditionally, particularly in black communities that are looking to have control over the resources and institutions, the idea of community controlled police uh, really comes down to whether or not there is a community apparatus that can have say over how police act in their community, whatever that police mechanism is. Uh, so whether or not we abolish the police and there's some other system of keeping people safe, the question becomes who controls that? Is that controlled by downtown mayors who are responsive to, again, developers, capitalist interests, private uh, uh, industry owners, private property owners, or is there any way in which, uh, which we think there is um, that you can say a collective of people in a particular community Community, can form a board that has the power to hire, fire, discipline, uh, deploy uh, non-armed, and that's also part of our suggestion, would be people, uh, people who don't have arms to help provide safety and support for people in the community, as opposed to trying to arrest and give people records, um, which destabilize them for their entire life. So when we talk about the idea of community control over policing, the idea is maybe there are going to be a few examples of people who may be who may need to be removed from the community environment because of their behavior. But for the most part, we're talking about people who are doing things based on economic reasons, based on living in a system which is unfair. Uh, in terms of resource distribution, a system which makes people think that the only way that they can be of some positive value is for them to sell their labor or to spend money to look like other people. What do we? How do we do things to change uh, change that dynamic? How do we do things to settle uh, or work on the issue of uh, of violence within community that makes people whole and brings restitution? Those are the ideas about restorative justice and about community policing when it's in the hands of the people and not in the hands of the capitalist state. So in short, that's when we use the term, or when people who are like me use the term of community control of policing, we're not talking about just replacing one uh, one set of masters for another for a police force, which is violent to our community. We're talking about a revolutionary change of the idea of what, what safety in our communities mean, and if we need to have some people who are designated to help support that safety, what is their role in doing so? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Jackie, I feel like what Kamal's really talking about here is power, which is why there's always such resistance to, um, you know, from the state to these different uh, uh, efforts to establish real community control of the police. Because for the people, for the communities to actually have that level of power and influence over the police as an institution 
<clears throat> runs as a correct contradiction to how the police are supposed to operate in a capitalist state, as we've been discussing this hour. You know what I mean? Because it's power that allows the police to kill people and get away with it. It is power that allows police to, uh, uh, you know, attack political dissent, as we've been discussing in the way that they do. And I also want to clarify what I was saying earlier. We should always maintain the highest discipline when we are engaged in our organizing, whether it's uh, at the community level, at a demonstration or what have you. But either way, the fact that the police are endowed with the ability to, you know, uh, attack movements, even when they haven't, you know, actually violated anything is part and parcel of this broader issue. And so we cannot uh, get around this uh, uh, question of power, uh, Jackie, which, as I mentioned on the show before, I think a lot of people are afraid of. And I remember, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King said there's nothing wrong with power. He said that uh, uh, power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. So he was understanding that there has to be a sort of balance in the way that we understand and, and, and sort of consider and work around power as an issue. Because at the end of the day, as long as we don't have it, then I think we'll continue to see things remain the same. Precisely. And, you know, when we are advocating for a society that's uh, not just advocating, fighting for a society that is based on ensuring people-centered human rights are uplifted and expanded throughout this country, we need to understand we can't do that without power. It's 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 great to, to protest and, and to organize, but unless we have the power— so and, and unless we gain the power through that organization, because that's the whole point of being an organization, understanding what it is we are fighting against, understanding what we're fighting for, learning how to fight for it and what to do with power once we gain it. I mean, that's the only way we're going to we're going to realize these people centered human rights. But, you know, the state is always very clear about not uh, about doing everything it can to make sure that we, the people, don't get that kind of power come out. And I'm actually thinking about uh, another Supreme Court ruling, the Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, which actually, I think, speaks a little bit to this issue, what we are fighting against. I think we think this ruling only has to do with uh, indigenous people and their sovereignty. But when we're talking about communities of people um, establishing power over their own institutions in their, in their communities, this seems to me to also kind of apply to that. And, and I'm wondering what you think about that. Oh, no, I think you're exactly correct. And I think that's, um, to take it slightly in another direction, when we talk about the Democrats and the liberals uh, who supposedly are trying to support us getting more rights or, or us having more power, we always have to realize is that what happens really is that these people are fighting to maintain those institutions. They're fighting to maintain their role in the power dynamic that already exists. Um, and so even as, as you guys mentioned earlier, when someone like Joe Biden says, oh, you could protest, but po protest peacefully, right, who's, who's uh, telling us the marker in the side. When we have people like Saudi Mayer, who comes out and talks about how Clarence Thomas cares about the institution of the Supreme Court, what these folks are telling us is that no matter what takes place and how many rights of ours are ripped away from us um, or taken away from us, uh, 
at we must still respect the institutions of power that they are a part of and that they created, even if they don't serve our interests. And so in the end, when we talk about power, we have to talk about creating institutions that serve our interests that we control. Otherwise, those institutions are a danger to all of us. Definitely. And I actually wanted to finish uh, that quote. I was talking earlier about King. He ended that saying power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. So we're talking about someone who, you know, sort of used his deep uh, moral conviction to understand the systemic nature of the oppression experienced by black folks and poor working oppressed people in the United States and across the globe. And we were discussing imperialism earlier. And as we know, you know, Dr. King really began to be seen as a threat by the ruling class when he left sort of the the parochial uh, 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 boundaries of civil rights and extended them to to human rights on the international stage, real people centered kind of human rights, basically uh, telling the United States to hold itself to the standard that it seems to hold uh, everyone else. And so at that point, now you're really messing with uh, 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 folks' pockets and the decision was made that he had to go. And so this is what we've all been living uh, through here for some time. And it's all connected. When we talk about racist police terror, when we talk about imperialism, when we talk about uh, uh, abortion rights and women's liberation and things like this, all of these issues and so much more emerge out of the fundamental contradictions of the capitalist system itself. And that is why these different wings of the movement have to come together and unite to really strike a blow at the uh, system itself. And if we look at how people have been filling the streets over the issue of abortion rights, over the issue of uh, LGBTQ liberation and over the issue of racist police terror, I would say that there is a great potential just for this mass movement to be developed. But we will have to do the work to put that together. And, you know, it won't be easy, but if it was, we wouldn't call it struggle. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank Kamal Franklin so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.